Amen. So today we're going to talk about God's irrevocable covenant of peace. It's irrevocable, irrevocable covenant of peace. The uh, Bible says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance or irrevocable. So these things cannot be taken back. We'll talk about why that's true and give you some encouragement and comfort that you can expect God's peace in your life and and what that peace really uh, entails. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter (coughs) 54, we'll start there. 54, it it really starts in verse 1. He's talking about uh, a time when God will will bring uh, such a level of joy to the children of Israel that they will forget about the former things. And that's that's a good thing. It starts out in verse one, single barren that you that did not bear and break forth into singing, cry aloud, you that did not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. So he can take <clears throat> a very, very tragic uh type of a life and turn it into one that is more joyful than if you had what it is that you were seeking God for. That's a miracle in itself because people get all bent out of shape. And, you know, if you miss one promise or something that you prayed for doesn't happen the way you thought it would, we just, you know, are messed up from the years. I don't go to church no more because. I don't trust in preachers. I don't give because. But God says... To break forth into singing and rejoicing because he can cause that to be 100% turned around. Tells you enlarge the place of your tent. It's one of our favorite scriptures. Amen. And we keep moving the little stakes. <laughs> Lengthen the cords. <laughs> you know. And I think about this when I think about faith. You know your faith. He, he's always encouraging us to stretch our faith. To believe him for greater things. And I think that's so important to do. Is to make sure that you always have your faith exercised. And have your faith extended into something that you are believing God for. You know, even if it's... Like I would... Sometimes I would listen to news reports on, on television. And I would see where somebody was injured and... They refused to give up, and I said, "Oh God, let me let me pray for that. I want to be on in on the miracle." You know, it, it just it just grabs you that way. So faith is very active and very able and willing and excited to get involved in in <clears throat> in uh, in life, in making a deposit, in making an, an impact. You know, investing itself. In in anything that looks like, uh, you know, God is getting involved in it or somebody can get God involved in it. Faith is just like that. So, you know, it's it's good to stretch your spirit, stretch your your believing, stretch your vision. Keep yourself stretched out. When Jesus would ask the disciples, where is your faith? It's because in fear they would hide it from him. So that he couldn't do anything with it. So we have to be careful about our fear level. Because that is one of the things that will stunt your faith and keep it from growing. And that's what God says here. Fear not in verse 4. 
You shall not be ashamed, neither confused or confounded. So God here is it looks as though he is elevating us to a place where we are above the expectation of the world. The things that the world thinks are so important, he can bring you into a place where those things pale in comparison to the life that he can give you. Amen. He says in verse 8, in a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So these things, the only way that this can be true for anybody is through redemption. You have to be purchased out of the power of the world so that you can come into the power of the glory of God. And so through redemption, these things are true. The things that caused you pain in the world now are just a, a, a former thing. It's an old memory. doesn't have any power over you anymore. He says, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me, or just like it was in the time of Noah. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. It says, for the mountain shall depart. <clears throat> and this is oath language. Okay, He's swearing on the power of of his himself as a creator he is saying i will destroy mountains i will destroy the earth before i would not do what i'm promising to do here this is an oath and he says the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed but my kindness shall not depart from you neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed saith the lord that hath mercy on thee so what is this covenant of peace and why is this important and what is he talking about here in this great kindness and he's swearing with strong language here. Whenever you see God <clears throat> staking something against something, weighing things in the balance. He says here the mountains I've created and the whole earth and even though I might destroy that I will not take away my covenant of peace. So he cares more about us and his covenant of peace than he does the earth that he created. He'll destroy that, but he'll never destroy this covenant that he has with us. So why is that so important? Well, it's important that we will know how strongly God feels about these things. He feels very strongly about them. So much so that he stakes his life against it and he's cut a covenant to ensure it. He's cut a covenant to ensure our peace. So the word peace, we've we've done this definition before but it's worth repeating because many times we forget or we, we, you know, take it lightly. That word peace, we think about, you know, an absence of turmoil or a feeling but peace God's peace really is more than just a feeling and it is the Hebrew word shalom which means to be safe means to be safe not just a a good feeling 
or feeling of absence of turmoil or absence of stress, but it means to be safe, not only in your mind, you know, peace in your mind, you know, if you're not worried, you have peace about things, but also in your body. And that means to be free from disease, free from pain, free from hurt, free from injury. And it also means to be safe in your estate, that is your belongings, your material goods. So it means to be safe from harm, safe from contamination, safe from danger, safe from hurt, safe from distress in all these areas of your life. So God will ensure that you are taken care of in mind, body, and estate. It also means to make completed or pulled together and not scattered. It means to be intact. To have purpose. To have meaning to be on your way somewhere. You know, be going somewhere. To have have a, a, a role in life that you can fulfill and be safe in it. You don't have to be afraid to dream. Or to make plans or to dream big dreams or to desire things because God says you're safe in all these areas. So it's okay to want that now. It's okay to expect that now. It's okay to make plans. You know, many times the young people, uh, we want to grow up and get married or, you know, grow up and have a career or grow up. Well, God says you can do that. It's okay to do that. You don't have to fear that you can't conquer adversity that comes against you. You don't have to be afraid that, you know, nobody will, you grow up and, and always be the bridesmaid and never the bride. Huh? I have you know they still make shotguns. <laughs> oh, it's an old, it's older than the other one, okay? But you know what I mean, okay? So... Don't be afraid. God has somebody for everybody. Amen. He does. So you just have to extend your faith toward him for these things. It also means to be friendly, to be friendly toward, disposed to be friendly toward someone. Amen. So when, when you have God's peace, that means that God is disposed to be friendly towards you. Not an enemy, but a friend. Which means that you can go to him at any time with any need and know that that need will be met. Not just that he will listen to you and hear you, but that that need will be met. Sometimes we, we kind of sell God short. We treat him like people. You know, sometimes you're just glad somebody lets you complain or let you get it off your chest to them. But God, because he's so full of compassion, he goes further. He will give you a tool to help you and and resolve the matter for you. He gives you an answer. He promises to get it straightened out for you. He goes even further. So we can expect that God (coughs) would make an end to things by being friendly. Makes an end to your difficulties. Makes an end to your promises. All these things that plague us will come to an end. Because of God's peace in our lives. It means to make amends. That's restitution. Where God will make up for 
whatever it is that's lacking in your life. I don't care if it's personal qualities that are lacking. You know how sometimes we, we say, well, I would, I would love to have that kind of job, but I just don't feel like I can do it. I don't feel unqualified or I don't have the patience for that. I don't have the mind for that. God, by making amends through his covenant of peace, will qualify you for things your heart's desire. So that it's safe to want certain things anymore because he makes up the difference there. He makes up the slack. He qualifies you. He makes amends for that. It means to make good. Anybody promised you something and reneged on it? God will make good on that. You ever think about sometimes, <laughs> I think about this sometimes, you know, when, when you're, say like before you know the Lord, if you're a kid or you treated somebody bad, you know, and you say, I wish I hadn't done that. When you, now that you know the Lord, you just feel bad about stuff. And I said, I wonder where they are and how they're doing and if they, you know, God, could you please let them know I'm sorry. Or, you know, there's something in us that when we understand right and wrong and God's laws and, and want to be on the right side of God's laws, we feel like a, a debt owing to someone sometimes. But you notice you never take it any further than that. Because you have a covenant of peace with him and he makes amends to that person for you on your behalf. If he didn't do that, we'd be in a world of trouble. You'd be looking for the bounty hunter to come. You know, you'd be scared to go out the house. But somehow that peace is extended to you from past things. So when you have a covenant of eternal peace with God, that means that peace is granted in situations that happened well before you met him. How do you think people who are Christians can, <clears throat> you know, like some, sometimes uh, women who have had abortions when they were, were sinners. And then they can come into Christianity and not have a conscience that bugs them totally and torments them day and night. You know, when you come into a knowledge of, when you're out there sinning and they tell you it's just a piece of tissue or whatever they tell you now, praise God, a lot of states now are demanding the ultrasound to be shown to the, to the, to the mother. And so how do you think those people are able to sleep at night knowing what they did wrong? Now they know what was wrong. It's because of his peace that is eternal. It was active back then and can be appropriated in the now for us so that we don't have to worry about how do I repay this person? I didn't do this right. Now, there are some times when God will have you. You know, there have been some people that came to Christ or, you know, cheated on their taxes. And God said, you better write out a check to Uncle Sam and get this straightened out. You understand what I'm saying? What you're able to do, do. You know, if you've got bad family relationships as an unbeliever and you come to Christ, you know, you want to make reconciliation with those people. You want to go to them and tell them, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm a Christian now and I understand now the life I was living was just wrong. You know, and I I want to tell you I'm sorry. You know, I remember when we had to sell the farm, you know, that kind of stuff because of what I did or whatever. You know, some people have caused their family everything. 
you know, parents of kids that have been on drugs, stole, stolen everything out of, the, of value out of the house. And so when you come to Christ, you have an understanding now, a firm conviction about how God feels about things. And so you can go to that person and amends have already been made in that relationship. See, they'll hear you. They'll forgive you or they will at least have peace with you and not be angry. Or you can allow God to work on that relationship until it's totally mended and totally restored. But there is room for those things to be made whole again. That's the other <clears throat> the other definition of God's peace. It does mean to make whole. To make whole. Now that's a legal term that's used in in civil courts mostly the the aim of the judge if you if you understand when somebody feels wrong he brings an action against another person well there's a goal that the judge has to set for that litigation and that is that the offended person number one they have to determine that there is an offense that has happened and the goal is that the offended party be made whole. That means that they are to leave that once that court, that gavel goes down and the judgment is rendered, that judgment shall leave the offended person whole. And that's what God's peace does. It leaves us whole, intact, nothing missing, nothing broken, forever. And we can tap into this covenant at any time. We have that in our lives at all times. So we are entitled to God's peace, which is not the right word for what we have. You know, that's just a way to encapsulate the whole concept. But that concept of peace means that you can walk in a place where you have no concerns, no cares about anything. That God has already settled it for you. And it's not just a feeling. And it's not just an absence of worry or strife or something like that. But it's a package of, of entitlements that we have. That we draw from. It's an inheritance that we have in God even. That we can draw from at any time. Because God has secured that for you. It also means to, uh, to render to make sure that you possess it. Okay? It's not just a thought that, that keeps you comfortable until you might get something. But it also means <clears throat> to render it to you and put it in your possession. His peace means to make perfect. So if there are some things in your life that aren't quite straightened out, his covenant of peace means that it's on the way or you working on it. Or it will soon be taken care of, but he will not leave you in that condition. If that condition is not getting you to where you need to be and it's not productive in your life, then God has a covenant with you to keep working at it to make you mature or make you perfected in a certain thing. This is part of the covenant that oftentimes believers aren't that fond of. Because that means conviction, it means change, it means you going into the word, it means you extending your faith where you thought you didn't want to do it before. 
It can mean a lot of things to us, but God will not leave us in the condition that he found us if it's not going to be for our benefit and for our profit. So his intactness means that he may have to go into your innards and pull some stuff out so that he can put better things in there. Uh, and so sometimes these things of, of perfection, these times, you know, we talk about uh, the potter's wheel. You know, all of those parables in the Bible and similes in the Bible where we know that God is working this out to our perfection. Why? Because he has a goal too. And that is that we are to conform to the image of his son. That's the way he created us to be. So part of God's peace is his bringing us intact in, in soul and body and estate. All of that entails an inner working on the inside of us, a change that the covenant brings about. Very often it's, it's not that stressful to us. If you love the word and you love God and you love obeying God, you know, it's not that difficult. But there are times when it is difficult, when he'll want us to, to you know, to slay Isaac for him. You got me? And so there are times when there are things that, that this covenant will demand of us. But the outcome is it's well worth it. See, we'll be rejoicing. We'll be singing. And we'll see that what God has for us is much better than anything we could have thought of for ourselves. So he says his loving kindness in Isaiah 54:10, That with great kindness. Sorry about that in 8. Everlasting kindness. Now that word kindness means to bow Toward someone. But it just means to bow from the neck only. You know, as opposed to bowing low in worship. This this kindness means to, to turn your face toward somebody and acknowledge them as you would an equal. So if God acknowledges you as an equal, that means he must see you as somebody of value and worth. See, the fact that he acknowledges you. He's not worshiping us. We worship him. But he turns to us in kindness. He turns his face toward us. The scripture tells us, may the Lord make his countenance to shine upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Uh, Intact, whole, in a state, mind, body, everything. May he give you everything. That you need to be content in life. And so it also means to, uh, to do this as a courtesy and to show oneself merciful and to give favor. So think about this. God always will show us mercy and favor and will turn his face toward us at all times. His face is toward the righteous at all times. So why should we need anything? Why be upset about anything? Just remember that this is an irrevocable covenant of peace. He can't take it back. Now the word covenant really means to cut. It means to cut. It always includes the shedding of blood. And then when blood is shed... That indicates that an oath is being sworn. 
So here in in Isaiah 54:10, the oath that's sworn here, what God is saying, He says, "I'll make the mountains fall down and the hills dissolve before I will not be kind and give you my peace." That's an oath. He swears his life on it. He swears his reputation as a creator. He said, "This whole earth will be destroyed and dissolve." But I'll always have my face toward you. I'll get mad at the hills. I'll get mad at everything else. I'll tear it all up. But you I love. You I always have peace with. Amen. And he swears his life on it. Not only are the mountains and the hills of creation sworn against it. But also his life is sworn against it. Uh, because it's a blood covenant. That word to cut means it, <clears throat> if if you don't know the steps of the covenant, I can go through them pretty quickly. Whenever people wanted to become friends, you know, people over the centuries, and we know it from the history even of this country, that when strangers meet one another, they have to have some way of dissolving animosity or you couldn't live with anybody. And so it was customary for people to cut covenants. And, and after people began to form uh, tribes and nations and groups of people, the leaders of different tribes and nations would cut covenant with one another. Now, nowadays, we have treaties, which aren't really as effective or strong. A lot of loopholes in that. A lot of people renege on them. But on a covenant, it was different. In a, in a covenant, two parties decided that they would lay down their animosity against one another. So what God is saying here, I have a covenant of peace with you. I will never be angry with you again. Mm-hmm. He's not mad at anybody anymore. Huh? Not at all. Why is he not? If it not had not been the, for the fact that his son shed blood on the cross, he would still be angry at us. But that blood shed has appeased his anger so that he cannot look at us in anger anymore. When he looks upon us, he looks upon us with kindness, with great loving kindness. In a covenant, what people did was they would exchange things, symbolizing my life for your life. We are one. My children are yours. <laughs> no. <laughs> Come get him this afternoon. No. <laughs> and yours are mine. <laughs> you know, and so forth and so on. And so there was an exchange of a life for a life. And usually people would combine forces with one another. This is how people got stronger. The weak would absorb would be absorbed by the strong. He'll say, for instance, I'm weak in my finances, but I'm strong in managing a farm and bringing in a crop, so forth and so on. I would get with somebody who was just the opposite. And together we could make a great business and, and be great partners in life. But it went beyond, because it was a blood covenant, it went beyond just the two parties. It extended through their descendants to their seed and their seed seed. 
And when the covenant was cut, it was cut in such a way that the life of each party was sworn against the life of the other party. So that when they did cut a covenant, what they would do, they would take an animal as a symbolic sacrifice, split the animal down the middle, and the two parties would walk through the pieces in what was a figure eight. So um, what would happen, for instance, um, well, I've got enough room I can show you. All right, so, amen. So so this is the animal that's split in half. Um, Anita, why don't you get up for a minute for me? And so over on Anita's side, there's the husband and mother's here. Everybody's here. And so what we would do was she's exchanging places with me and I'm exchanging places with her is what is happening. So she's got all her clan and all her possessions over there. And I've got mine over here. And then we begin to walk through these pieces. So you come toward me and you walk on my side there in a figure eight. So that when the covenant's cut... She's over on my side taking my stuff, and I've taken her place symbolically. And as we walk through the pieces, we can do it again. So might God do to me as we have done to this animal if I would break this covenant with you. You see what I'm saying? So if I look bad at her kid or a mama, (laughs) I'm in trouble. (laughs) You got me? Or if her mother needs something and I don't give it to her. My life is at stake. See, this is how important it was for survival for people to have a strong friendship with other people. And that's what we have with God. We have better than a covenant of strong friendship. We have an eternal covenant of peace, great shalom. So that in this covenant, the weakness of the, the believer is absorbed by the strength of God. See, now we've exchanged places. Jesus became weak so that we might be strong. So he took our place in that covenant. He walked through the pieces with God the Father on our behalf. So that when we're in Christ, we have all of the benefits And the blessings of that covenant, all we have to do is yield to him, give our lives to him in repentance and yield to him and know that that provision of God is always there and he can never take it back. It's always going to be there. And so God said in times past he was angry. He was not kind or disposed to show us favor, but he sought us and found us in order for us to have covenant with him. Now this covenant of peace, what does it entail? There's a, a, a pretty good example of what, how God pursues and seeks us. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, you see a covenant being cut between two people. <clears throat> David, before he becomes king, Cuts a covenant of strong friendship with Jonathan, who is King Saul's son. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit 
with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. So he saw qualities in him that he admired. He thought this is an admirable person. This is a person who is worthy of cutting covenant with, of strong friendship. See, you have to look at that person as worthy. While we were yet sinners, he considered us worthy. Sometimes we look at our life of sin and, oh, dirty dog, rotten thing. But God considered us worthy, even in the condition we were in. Here Jonathan is. He loves David as his own soul. David's a shepherd. He doesn't have, he's not royalty. He doesn't have royal manners. He's just coming in to to play for uh, King Saul. Saul is troubled by an evil spirit. He's losing his mind because he's disobedient to God. It's another, write that down. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a hard road fighting God all the time. Huh? And people do lose their minds. They still do. And so he says, <clears throat> Saul, it says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And David really was just a shepherd boy. He was there as a servant. And so in his, in his dealings with Jonathan, David is going to get the best end of the deal. Because Jonathan has everything. David is nothing. I mean, he's skilled, but he's not refined. He's got some warrior skills. He knows God, but he's not refined. Kind of like we are when we first step into the things of God. You know, everybody's got a prophecy. Everybody's called to do something great. But we miss fire every time we step out to do something. Uh, so we need refinement. We need training. We need to be skilled in God's, in God's house. And it says, And Saul took him that day and would not let him go any more home to his father's house. So David actually moves into the palace. Whenever God moves you in somewhere, he permanently places you somewhere. He puts you, tells you to tap, put in roots someplace. It's because he's seeing more coming out of you down the road. He wants you to stay put so that you can be trained, you can be groomed, you can be taught the right things to do. David probably didn't know how to come in to the palace, you know, who to bow to, what to wear. You know, you can't come in there with your your sandals that you wore out there, you know, dodging sheep do. You know, I mean, you might have had some stick on your sandals and you go, oh my goodness, on the good carpet here. Wow. Huh? So he had to be taught because God saw him as king before he even stepped in there. So God has to put him in a place of his future, put him in a place where he would know what to do, where he could be trained, where he could be taught. So he finds a place. Your gift will make room for you and put you before in places in high places. And so that's exactly what's happening to David. But David just sees himself as, as being a servant of Saul. And, but a friend, Jonathan, somehow the king's son has taken a liking to him. It says, verse 3, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. This is very important. 
when David and Jonathan make covenant that puts David into royalty. Didn't they walk through the pieces and exchange everything? It says here, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. Make note of that. huh? Because if one of them doesn't survive, the other one's got to take up that place. And they didn't know at that time that Jonathan would not live to be king. So really David has a natural claim to the throne. And he also has God's anointing to get there. So he's got a twofold key into the door. Huh? So nobody can dispute that, that that throne rightfully belongs to David. When it's time, that throne rightfully belongs to David. And so he says he stripped him of his robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his garments, even down to his sword. So he would have his weapons and his bow and his girdle, that is the belt that held everything together. And these are typical exchanges in a covenant of strong friendship. I give you my weapons. I give you my position, my clothing. I give you my, <clears throat> uh, my ring, my valuables. Everything was exchanged so that really David had nothing to offer, did he? Except the dirty sandals uh, and the smelly whatever he wore. As a shepherd, he had nothing to give this this man. And that's us. When we come into covenant with God, we have nothing to offer. You know, Peter uh, Peter made the mistake of saying, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. You ain't had nothing. You didn't even know how to fish right. I had to show you where to drop the net to get the fish. Come on now. You know, people are, are funny. Christians... <clears throat> You say things like, well, you know, God wants to use you and do this and do that. And they never want to change their lifestyle. And they're not doing anything. You got me? Not anything of any consequence. But there's something about people that we feel that whenever God says give up, we think it's real valuable. And what he takes from us are the things that he can't use and the things that get us in trouble too takes your sin he takes your your wrong desires he takes all of those things away from us so that we're like davis and man you stripped and gave me everything what do i have to give nothing to give you huh but i can give you my allegiance i can give you my heart i can give you my my uh my devotion my commitment i can give you those things so god takes the the intrinsic things that we can offer Can you give God your heart? Yeah, I can give him my heart. Can you give him your time? Can you put him first? Can you you think about him before you think about it? That's easy to do. See, these are the things that we can accomplish and we do accomplish to keep our end of the covenant. He says, if you love me, just obey me. You don't have to give me anything except your devotion and your obedience. And so this is what they did when when David and Jonathan made this strong covenant and so it says in verse 5 and David went out wheresoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely so there's a change that's starting to come over him 
he's not just <clears throat> you know playing music to soothe him there's a wisdom that's coming on David now that he did not have before so even this man to man covenant that they have cut God honors God honors the other step in the covenant was that they would each cut themselves because the the word covenant does mean to cut typically the cut was made somewhere on the forearm wrist or the palm of the hand and then they would end in a bloody handshake where the bloods were commingled symbolizing that they were one flesh and one soul now and that all the descendants were knit together in that covenant as well they would also take the the wound and mar it gunpowder dirt or something like that to cause it to uh, end in a uh, an obvious scar whatever they would put into it some kind of abrasive so that it would end in an obvious scar in fact in, in some cultures tribes there is a natural scarring to tissue the keloiding that sometimes you'll see in in African Americans and African tribes where that that scar comes up like a welt actually in fact they'll make designs on their bodies where the different tribes will mark their bodies to form a design to distinguish who that tribe is well that scar was there as a constant reminder huh if Jonathan made David mad or David made Jonathan mad and he raised his hand he oh I can't do that look at the scar you see so you're reminded constantly that you are are in covenant with that person you are reminded that that thing you look at that and that's constantly telling you what your obligation is it's constantly telling you what you owe to that person. It's constantly telling you you can't get angry at that person. You got to walk in love. You got to forgive. You got to keep covenant. You got to, got to, got to, got to. Huh? Now, what we have in our covenant is the Holy Spirit brings us into remembrance these things. He'll tap you on the inside and say, "Hey, you can't get mad at her like that. You better go over and apologize." Huh? She's of the household of faith. Huh? He'll tell you that about anybody. You're to love everybody. Huh? Not let the sun go down on your wrath. But Jesus has the scars that he bore for us because he looks at his scars and remembers that he did it for us. So this is why God's covenant of peace is irrevocable because his scars are still there. Anybody who's seen Jesus when he was resurrection and the Bible says so. Huh? Thomas says unless I put my hand in the scars and Jesus said well here they are. Huh? He was raised from the dead at that time. So his scars are there as a reminder to him of what he's done for us. And that his covenant of peace will never be taken away from us. It's a constantly reminding. When the father sees the scars, time he sees his son, he is kindly disposed towards us. Because he sees, oh, this is paid for. This, he went to the cross for this one. 
Uh, this one I have to show favor. I have to give you what's owing to you. I've got to bring your family back together. I've got to do all of these things that I promised to do and that so that you can be intact, nothing missing, nothing broken. Nobody will ever be able to say that a child of mine went without anything. Don't parents feel that way? Never be able to say that I didn't take care of my kids. And that's why he does it. So that his covenant of peace will not depart from us. Never depart from us. Because it's cut and it's sealed in his blood. And it's irrevocable for that reason. So David was pretty much adopted into the family. Saul wouldn't let him go home. His gifts were a necessity there. They gave Saul because David had a covenant of peace between uh, uh, Saul's family through Jonathan. Then that peace had to be returned to him. And so uh, he was able to minister to King Saul and keep him in peace as long as he was there. So it says also that David began to increase in wisdom. He conducted himself wisely. That means that he began to act more like a king. That word wisely means exactly that. He began to conduct himself more as a king. In other words, he began to look like he belonged there. Some of you you uh, parents, when your children get to be teenagers, <clears throat> they might have a friend that maybe the friend has a a house that's not as peaceful as yours. And, you know, you come every time you come home, they, or every time your kid shows up, they're right there with them. And they, they begin to look like your kids. You know, they're looking like they belong. Well, why don't you go home? You know, it dawns on you one day, this kid has been here like for, for three years now. How come he don't go home? Huh? Because they, they somehow, when their souls are knit together like that, they begin to take on that, that uh, countenance. They begin to take on the habits. They begin to take on the vision, the understanding. All of that becomes their possession because of their association. See, I mean, as long as that friendship is there, there's going to be some, some mixing and mingling of the two together. You know, sometimes it, <clears throat> the kids will... Start to want to do things in the house. You know, they have little little gifts or little abilities that they have. Oh, Miss So-and-so, can I get that for you? Can I? They just fit right in. And that's what David did. He began to fit in so well that Saul would look at him and get scared of him. A king knows what a king's supposed to look like, you see. And so it says that he got jealous of David after a while. And he began to, to fight against him, and that started the war between those two families. It went on for a number of years. Some people think it's maybe as many as 15 years, this war where David ran from Saul and, and continued in that way after he was not welcome there anymore. There came a time David had to depart from that family, but he still had the covenant scar that he had with Jonathan. See, that strong peace that that strong friendship that he had was still there see so when it was customary we said when you love somebody as your own soul that's that's a key 
that that person is is entitled to your friendship and your loyalty. And this is the way they proved it through the covenant of strong friendship. So after a while, David was even elevated. Saul gave him a position. He put him in charge of all the military there. This was after he had killed Goliath. You know, David would go out and come in, as they say. He was always going out to battle. He was developing his gifts and his qualities as a king. When he killed Goliath, he was just raw talent. You got me? Just able to obey God, able to hear from God, just like many of us are when we get started. You know, God will use us to do this thing or use us to do that thing. And then that that grace or that anointing will leave us for a while. We have to be trained further so that we can carry all of that, you know, and not just be raw talent. If David had been raw talent, he would never have been able to do to be king. He had to learn how to command people. He had to learn how to be a general. He had to learn how to get confidence, get the men's confidence so that they would follow him. All of these things you have to be trained to do. And so God positioned David so that he could get this training from Saul. So David gets elevated to the chief over the warriors. Of course, he becomes a victim of his own fame. Saul hears the the uh, cheerleaders out there singing. Huh? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. So they're giving David a higher position than Saul. Public opinion can change almost overnight, folks. You don't make a ministry based on where the, when people tell you you ought to be a preacher. Or they try and tell you, you know, God's called you to great things. You can't make a ministry or a life out of public opinion. And David knew this very well. So David and Saul get into some strife, some discussion about some things. David, for killing Goliath, was promised Saul's daughter. He had an older daughter that should have been his wife. And then Saul reneged on that and gave him Michael. Who I think was just a pistol, for lack of a better word. She just wasn't the best pick of the family. Let's put it that way. She caused him a lot of trouble. She was rebellious in many ways. So Saul begins to try and cause this covenant of strong friendship to crumble between his house and between the house of David. So they had long war in 1 Samuel Three, let me see. Is that right? I think it's Second Samuel three. Let me let me get this straight. Right, Second Samuel chapter three, verse one, says, "Now there was a long war between the house of Saul." And the house of David. This is after Saul is killed. You know he was killed by the Philistines. And so was his son Jonathan. They died the same day in battle. David comes back to Judah where they live. And so the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are now split up. Saul's descendants want Israel. And David takes Judah. But they are fighting still. 
And David, I'm sure, periodically looks at that scar on his wrist. In fact, when he was running from Saul on those years, and remember he caught Saul sleeping in a cave, and David cut off the hem of Saul's robe, and the Bible says he got instantly convicted about it and went and confessed to Saul that that he had done wrong. And I believe that what convicted him was that scar on his wrist, you see, reminding of the covenant that he had cut with his son, where he couldn't do any harm. Number one, he was God's anointed. But number two, he couldn't even in self-defense kill him because of that covenant of strong friendship. See, that always puts a conviction on you when you're in covenant with someone. Even, you know, take something like that we still have, like marriage. When you have a marriage covenant, you are obligated not to let the sun go down on your anger between you and your spouse. You got me? So there are certain things that God will use to put you in remembrance of how to treat that person. Because the, the goal is really to preserve the relationship. When you swear an oath and make a vow to somebody, you want to preserve the relationship. You're not so so your individual rights get absorbed for the good of the relationship. You start to do things to preserve the relationship. That's why people say things like, well, uh, my spouse is abusive. You don't know and all this and all that, but you can still preserve the relationship. It's till death do you part. It didn't say anything, but you can, you know, if this and if that and if the other. Because we could all put anything in there we want to do. So it's a good thing that we have examples of people who are put to the test in the word of God. Now I don't know of anybody who's, if your wife or your husband threw a javelin at you and tried to pin you to the wall with it. Huh? But that's what Saul did to David. And David still escaped with his life. He did everything that he could to protect the integrity of that covenant. Why? Because these blood covenants are irrevocable. You can't you can't start out being a person of peace with someone and then say it's okay to be in strife and be in animosity with them. It would, when you start out in peace, you end up in peace. You're concerned about their safety. You're concerned about their well-being. You're concerned about their state of mind. You know, you, sometimes you see people in relationships, they just manipulate one another. You know, playing tricks with one another. Somebody's in a bad mood and the other one has to make them feel happy and all this kind of nonsense. That's just foolishness. Because that relationship won't be there if you keep that nonsense up. Huh? I can remember I was a kid. My mother took all that pout witchcraft out of us girls. Four little... Little Tabithas running around there. She tore us up. Huh? You come in there, you know, you want to drag and stomp. She said, I'll break your ankles off. You best quit stomping in this house. You went and sat down and you were respectful. Huh? You came in pouting. She said, put your lip in. She said, no, better yet, put it on the floor so I can step on it. She said, I'll give you something to pout about. Huh? You didn't do no wiggling your nose like Tabitha around her. She cut that stuff off real quick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was good for us because then you learn how to, instead of being an actress, 
and a drama queen, you learn how to express yourself. She would wait until she calmed down and you calmed down. She'd talk to you. She said, now what's wrong with you? And she would hear you out. And many times you just say nothing because mo- most of the time there wasn't nothing wrong. You were just trying out the craft. You found out it didn't work up and through there. huh? So you put your wand away. Huh? Cut it out. It's the truth. And so when you, when you are in covenant, when you have a vow with somebody, you're concerned about their mental and emotional well-being. Uh, you do everything you can to preserve their mental integrity. You don't do things to work them up just to see if you can get away with it. Now, armed robbery, <laughs> ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, in certain cases, justifiable armed robbery. <laughs> whatever. Well, so anyway, Saul's house and David house, David's house had what they call long war. There was war between <clears throat> Saul's and David's, just like there has been war between God and man since the fall of man. Uh, we've been enemies of God. As the Bible says, yet while we were sinners, he commended his love toward us in such a great way that Christ died for us and made a way for us to have peace with God. So as the, the war progressed, it says Saul's house got weaker and weaker and David's got stronger. And that's what I need to tell you anytime the enemy opposes you, the devil, just keep fighting. If the devil's trying to steal something from you or he's laid a claim to, to your, your household, your children, your money, your whatever it is, your, your peace of mind, just keep fighting. You keep fighting because God's on your side. See, he's promised you that, that you are safe. It's nice to be fighting in a war where you're safe. You can't be killed. You can't suffer any damage. You just got to stay in there. See, it makes it worth it. And so all you have to do is stay in there with God and the enemy will get weaker and get weaker and you will get stronger and you get stronger. There's no such thing as a fight where you don't have to exercise yourself. You have to get involved in it. You've got something at stake here. But if you'll take a stand and let God come for you in your stand, you'll find that the enemy gets weaker and you get stronger. So David gets much, much stronger. Oftentimes we can look back at our personal history, you know, before we were saved, that we thought we were having a good time out in the world. We're really kicking it. But we found out that we lost the desire for those things. See, your love of the world gets weaker and weaker. The Bible says sin has pleasure only for a season. So as you're believing God for loved ones to be saved, they keep fighting God. Trust me, they're getting weaker and weaker. Now, they might bluff you and tell you a bunch of nonsense, try to scare you off. But they are getting weaker. The more they fight God, the weaker they get. So David, let me see. Uh, Trying to think if this is first or second chronicles. Verse 9, I guess switch over. This is a story that's, that goes through several, several um, books and situations. 
Hang on, let me just find it. I think it's Second Chronicles. Well, nope. I think we're still in First Samuel. Let me see if it's First Samuel nine. Sorry about that. Ah, second. It's Second Samuel nine. Sorry about that. Second Samuel chapter nine. So David, because of the long war with these two households, he wants to resolve things. He wants to get things straightened out. There have been uh, two of Saul's descendants so far on the throne in Israel. David's been king of Judah. And you know that after the death of Saul, these kingdoms were split and they were never reunited again. So it was never God's will to reunite these kingdoms. Why? Because Saul's descendants would always lay claim to the kingdom in one way. And David had it the right way from God. See, the strife that Saul started was to run continually. It ran through all of his descendants. And there were even wars after his descendants all died off. There were wars over the kings of Israel and so forth and so on. But the kingdom of Judah seemed to have relative peace compared to that of Israel. Why? Because the one that God chose to be king was on the throne there. So the 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 uh, promised seed would come through the house of Judah where God would have the one that he chose over that throne and it would be an eternal throne. And so here we see David <clears throat> in chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not for Saul's sake. But for Jonathan's sake, because David had cut the covenant with Jonathan and he said, because of what I told Jonathan, I will do for him. I am looking for his descendants. So then Saul's seed gets the benefit of it anyway, but it wasn't because of anything Saul did. Somebody that is disposed kindly toward David had to come into that situation to preserve the household of Saul. And so that was Jonathan. And so he said, for the fact that I have a covenant with Saul's son, this is why I'm looking for his descendants. It's not because of my, um, because of my relationship with Jonathan I'm looking for him, not because of my relationship with Saul. His relationship with Saul would cause him to look for them, to kill them, and cut them off. Huh? Because Saul was trying to prevent him from being king. So he says, I'm overlooking the father. And because of my covenant with the son, this is why I'm looking for him. See, we can have relationships with people for any number of reasons. And it's important that, that David remember his covenant with Jonathan because if he had just remembered Saul, he would be within his rights to kill everybody, all the descendants of Saul, because they were contesters to the throne that he was holding. But as long as he remembered 
I cut covenant with him. I'm sure there were many times David would ask that question after looking at that scar. You see what I'm saying? He'd sit there and he'd be doing fine for a minute and then he'd look up. Is there any, are you sure? Have we found everybody in the family? And see, I'm sure that when they found, when they thought David was thinking about them, they got nervous and wanted to scatter. Because they didn't know why he was looking for them. Are they looking for them because of the animosity he had with, with my grandfather? I don't, then many of them didn't know anything about the covenant he cut with Jonathan. So as far as they knew, David was looking for him to kill him. Huh? Just like we were before we met the Lord in peace. Huh? We didn't know anything about a covenant of peace with God. When you're a sinner, you run from God and you hope he never finds you. And so, and that's why many times when you tell people about the Lord, they don't want to believe you. God is good. Oral Roberts got so persecuted, he was never persecuted so much for the healing ministry as when he told people God was good, as when people got mad at him. Because most people are satisfied thinking that God's mean, he's angry, they don't want to read the Bible. If you read the Bible to them, they want to kill you for that. And so they always want to water it down because in most humans' minds, they don't want to know God because they're not sure what God's looking for them for. Huh? God wants to talk to you. Why? Huh? Can I pray with you? I, I think God has something for you. What? <laughs> huh? And so this is the way it is. This is why sin separates us from God because we don't have that covenant with him. We don't have it. And he's looking for us to put us into the covenant. He's looking for us to give us strong consolation. He's looking for us to give us his eternal peace to make us safe. In all the areas where we have trouble, he wants us to be safe. And that's why he's looking for us, but we still run from him. Even when we're saved, we run from God. Huh? We don't, you know, worship is not the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning. Think about getting to your job. You think about your bills. You think about what, huh? When really, he says, if you worship me, you will spend your, your years in prosperity, your days in pleasures. If you just worship me. And so many times we find ourselves in this kind of spot where little Mephibosheth was. So David said in verse 9, 9 verse 1, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they called him to David, now Zeba's probably been under the radar around there. He said, you know, if I play my cards right, nobody going to know where I came from. I'm just, I'm going to blend in, you know. So, you know, when David took over the palace, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were just there. You know, you don't kick everybody out. You just make them keep serving. And so they find out that Zeba was was uh, of the house of Saul, a servant there. When they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, uh, Is it Tuesday? <laughs> I'm John on Tuesday. <laughs> I might be hairy today. Uh, and he, he told the truth. He said, y- Your servant is he. And the king said, Is there not any yet of the house of Saul? That I may show the kindness of God unto him. 
That's us. God tore everything up looking for us. Huh? He sent he sent think of all the people that witnessed to you. The times that you went to church and didn't go back, just went on Christmas and Easter, stuff like that. You know, or some of us were in church in religion all our lives and didn't know any better. That's a bigger darkness. Huh? And then the light of the gospel showed in. God looked forever to find us. Huh? Wouldn't, wouldn't rest until that. Why? Because he sees the scars on his son. And he knows that there are yet many out there who have not had a chance to come in. That's why he saved us and left us in this earth. So that we can draw men unto him. Huh? So that he can gather them all in. And so David has that heart. He says, I want to show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, Jonathan has yet a son which is lame in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Now, Lodibar was like a, a slum. It was a it, it, that that name means a wilderness place or desert place. It also means a place lacking in pasture. So really, it's like a little slum that people who are hiding out going. You mean it's murderers there? I mean, if <laughs> this is no place for <laughs> for kings, you know. Come on now, poor little Mephibosheth. And it said that when he was five years old. <clears throat> He had to flee the palace, and the nurse that was assigned to him was probably trying to get out of there so fast herself and save her own life. She dropped him, and must have dropped him hard. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't like you don't pick up a five-year-old and just carry him. She's probably dropping people over walls, dropping people out of windows, and all of that kind of stuff. And she dropped him, and the impact was so hard that it broke both of his feet so that they never healed. So here he is walking on crutches, broken, battered, beaten, like us. When God found us, he come to seek and save that which was lost. But when he found us, he gave us a covenant of eternal, irrevocable peace that we are safe in our body. His feet can be healed. He's safe in his mind. He doesn't have to be scared that David's good. Every day he's thinking to him, suppose David sends somebody and finds me here. Living in fear every day of his life. And so he's, he's now about to have his days of fear ended. Lame in his feet. He's a victim. Whosoever wants to show him kindness, he has to receive it because he can't do anything for himself. We're such victims outside of God, you know, just when you think back and think how confused and how separated from God we once once lived. And he found us to do us good. He found us to elevate us back to the position, original position that he called us to. And so you see it so well here in this story with, with David and Mephibosheth. And so uh, Lodi Bar really is a, an outlaw hiding place. Thieves are there. It's not like, and it's in Samaria, so it's not really a part, uh, a, a real part of Israel like under kingdom authority. 
like uh, you know if if there were people under the old covenant if there were people who were uh, not guilty of crimes they could run to a city of refuge well this wasn't a legitimate city of refuge this is where thieves and murderers and burglars hung out I'm sure Mephibosheth if he could eat he had to hide his food he had to live in seclusion this is no kind of life for him so this was no place for royalty so when David verse 5 it says King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir the son of Amiel from Lodibar now when Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan the son of Saul was coming to David he fell on his face okay this is the bowing down showing kindness worship different kind of bowing down and did reverence and David said Mephibosheth and he answered behold thy servant and David said unto him the first thing he said and this is what God says to us is don't be afraid of me anymore fear not don't be afraid of me see those words coming from God mean more to us than anything those are eternal words you know there are people who backslide away from God they've lived for God for years and and worked for God and done things for God why do you think those people come back the ones that do come back it's because of this covenant of of eternal peace that first fear not that God ever spoke to them keeps resounding on the inside of them every time they think about going further into the world every time and they're they're afraid to go back to God because they've destroyed their reputation they've ruined friendships they've ruined families they've done all kinds of wrong but that fear not keeps them coming back you know the ones that that'll tell you if you find some that are honest that backslide mess up you know i've known ministers that you know divorce the co-pastor of the church you know got to split up a congregation you know who's the wife getting who's the you know Come on now. It's just stupid. It's stupid enough with your natural family. Now you gotta split up God's house and decide, well I'm taking I'm getting to church down the street and y'all come with me. Whoever wanna come with me, come with me, but I'm leaving him, etc. They do that stupid stuff. And the ones who come back will tell you, they said, You know what? I thought I could run from God. But he drew me back and he said, I finally got to the place where I wasn't afraid to face him anymore that fear not keeps talking to them that covenant it's safety there's safety in that fear not when it comes from God you know for a certainty sometimes somehow in you you know or you feel that what you did is worthy of great punishment but you know that you can trust him you know that you must trust him because he says I will never leave you or forsake you I just won't leave you in your sin I won't do it. And so he continues to come back to us to bring us back to himself because he still says, I don't care what you did. The mountains can depart. The hills can fall into the sea. He said, but I will never take my covenant of peace away from you. With me, you're safe. With me, you're intact. With me, you're whole. With me, you're prosperous. I will heal you. I don't care if what you did caused you to get sick. I will heal your body. I don't care. Because I look at the scars of my son and I know it's paid for. I know. 
the day that that covenant was cut for all of humanity. I know what that means. So then there's a place now in David's heart for Mephibosheth, lame in his feet, not able to work and do anything for himself. David said to him, fear not, for I will surely show you kindness. Now, words like surely. It's the same surely as Jesus, verily, verily. That's covenant language. This means there's an oath sworn. There's blood that's been shed. There's a covenant that's been shed that makes it a sure promise. It's not just me wanting to do something nice for you and maybe I can't do it. But this is a sure thing. So when a king tells you surely, when God tells you surely, that means that he is swearing his life against this. So David is saying to you, I will show you eternal kindness. I'm going to be kind to you as long as you live. It'll never, it'll never go away. I won't wake up one morning and decide I don't like you no more and kick you out of here. He said, this is a sure thing. And he says, I'll show it to you for Jonathan, your father's sake. You know how people say things like, uh, well, you know, uh, so-and-so would have wanted it this way. This ain't like that. This is not like that. This is every time I look at this scar, I remember that I loved your father like my own soul. And I swore to him that because I loved him, I love you just the same way. And what I would do for him, I'll definitely do for you, and even more so. And so he says, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. There's your restitution again. Whatever it is the devil stole from you, he'll give it back to you. You know, there are people, kids, ADD, you know, and all them alphabets they got now. And the longer we're here on this earth, the more alphabets they're going to have. There are going to be some people that are almost condemned to a worthless life before they even get here. They're doing it now. But God says, I'll restore to you everything. He says, all the land that your father had, I'm going to give that back to you. I don't want that. That belongs to you. So I'm here to do you good. I'm here to see to it that you receive everything good that's coming to you. And he says, and you will eat bread at my table continually. In other words, you don't have to work for this. Huh? All you have to do is rest, sit at my table, believe me, and just be a part of things around here. You see, David's giving him the same thing that his father gave him. David's introduction to the palace came through this boy's father. And why should he not do that for him and more so? And so David then restores everything to Mephibosheth that his family would have had. He's the last heir, and he's the one who has everything, just like us. The Bible says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Us believers, we're the final heirs of everything, all the possessions of earth that belongs to us. And so God has assured that with that covenant of eternal peace. Amen. Why don't we stop? Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us understanding, for blessing us to know you, to know your word, to know everything that's in your word, Father, and then some that we can experience what your word provides for us. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. And we thank you for this eternal covenant of peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Amen.